Well, good morning, my friends. Um, I want to invite you this morning to gather around God's Word and to still your heart as we prepare to, to really hear from the Lord and by His Word. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're in Matthew chapter 12. And let me remind you about what is happening. We've, we've been witnessing the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has been going around to various synagogues and He's been preaching to the Jewish people and what, what Jesus has been teaching is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus has made some claims about himself. He's called himself the Son of Man. And that is a, a figure that emerged in the book of Daniel. Um, it, the, uh, the Son of Man was, was a great king over all people whose kingdom, it says, shall never pass away. And so Jesus has kind of taken that moniker upon himself. And as you might assume, people would be skeptical of such a claim. Uh, but Jesus follows up his claims with, with these undeniable miracles. Miracles that are done in very, very public places in front of a lot of large crowds. And, and really what Jesus is claiming is to be the long-awaited Messiah. And those claims are, are, are giving, uh, uh, his, his miracles are giving credibility uh, to, to his claims to be the Messiah. And, and the crowds, uh, they, they're continually following Jesus uh, but the religious leaders of the day, and primarily the Pharisees, the Pharisees have a growing animosity towards Jesus. And over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that animosity towards Jesus between the Pharisees kind of boil up into conflict. And, and so last week we saw conflict over Sabbath laws, and uh, that his disciples begin to pick grain on the Sabbath, so the Pharisees you know, when they were, when the disciples were picking grain, they began to accuse them of working. And, uh, and on the same day then, after, after they accused the disciples, Jesus goes into the synagogue. I don't know if you remember this, but there's a man in the synagogue. He's got a withered hand. And, and the Pharisees kind of, they say, well, Jesus, is it, is it legal to heal the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath? And, and that question really reflects their ignorance. They were, they were literally talking to God incarnate, right? They're talking to Jesus. Jesus has the power over all creation because Jesus was there and part of all creation. And John 1, 3 says that all things were made through him. And, and the Pharisees themselves have made up these rules and they're trying to apply these rules about what you can and not do on the Sabbath to God incarnate. They're, they're trying to limit what God can do based on human religion. And Jesus isn't going to play their games. And, and so Jesus miraculously heals the man with the withered hand. He does it right there in the synagogue in front of a crowd of worshipers. And when Jesus leaves the synagogue that day, do you remember what happens? A huge crowd of people go with him. And of course you would. You've seen what he could do. It's amazing. I guess my question for you is this. How do you think that made the Pharisees feel when the crowd leaves with Jesus? I bet they're probably jealous. I bet they're probably growing bitter. And there, there is a growing darkness that's, that's starting to happen in the hearts of the Pharisees. And that darkness in their hearts is driving them to do very dark things. In fact, Matthew 12, 14 says this. We'll put it up there. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now that's dark. That's wicked. I don't know if you've ever experienced bitterness but when you grow bitter against someone, you often start to conspire against them, don't you? 
And as our story progresses, we have another healing story. And it, this is what we kind of talked about last week. There was, there was a, a, a man who was demon-possessed. Do you remember this? He was, he was mute, and he was, he was blind. And, and although it was still the Sabbath, and the crowd is there with Jesus, and they've left the synagogue, they, they bring to him a man in particular, this, this man who's, who's, who's been uh, afflicted by demons and who is blind and mute. And, and, and the crowd begins, and after Jesus heals him, it's just really quickly, Jesus heals this man. And the crowd is so amazed at the healing of this, this man that they say, can this be the son of David? They're just amazed at what Jesus has done. And, and what we see is there's a kernel of faith that's growing inside the people as they see these continual miracles. So they're going, maybe, maybe this is the Messiah. So again, how do you think that made the Pharisees feel? Because the Pharisees have, have obviously followed the crowd that left with Jesus after the synagogue. And Jesus continues to do all these miracles. By the way, still the Sabbath, right? Still offensive to them. How do you think that made them feel? to know that the crowd was beginning to believe in Jesus. They're frustrated because they can't explain how Jesus is doing these miracles. So they decide an interesting tactic. Because they can't disprove his miracles, they decide to, to say that or to make these claims that all the miraculous work that Jesus is doing, the power to do so comes from the devil. You remember that? It's like, uh, yeah, he may be doing the miraculous things, but it, but it comes from Belzebul. It's quite simply blasphemy. And, and Jesus quickly, he responds to these allegations by explaining their flawed logic. Uh, Jesus says the devil would not afflict this, this man by demons on the one hand and then heal him on the other hand. Jesus says that makes no sense because the devil wouldn't go and undo his own work. Instead, Jesus tells the Pharisees that, that he had come into the man, he had overpowered the devil, and that Jesus had bound up the devil that he might deliver this man. And do you remember what Jesus warns the Pharisees about? Jesus warns the Pharisees that they are getting very close to the point of no return. That they've seen all of his glory on display, they've seen his miracles, and yet, even though they've seen it all, because of their wicked and jealous hearts that are beginning to, to, to rise up, they deny what they clearly know to be true, and they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. And, and so what I want to tell you is that today's reading, what we're going to study today, is from that exact same encounter. This is uh, maybe the second part of Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees following their blasphemous allegations that all of his healing work, especially the one of this demon-possessed man, comes from the power of the devil. Uh, so I can't wait to read it with you this morning. And so let's jump right in. If you are able to stand, I invite you to do so. We're going to be reading Matthew 12, just, just uh, a few short verses, 33 through 37. And before we read, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, as we approach your good and holy word, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would uh, quicken our hearts that we might understand your word well. You are gracious and good to us to reveal yourself to us by your word. Um, and, and we look forward to being in it today, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's read together, beginning in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure 
brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The question at hand uh, in, in, in our reading in this text seems to be this. Is the work of Jesus in some way powered by the devil? That was the allegation of the Pharisees, okay? Look what Jesus says about this idea, because that's still what we're dealing with. Verse 33, right? Still Jesus' response to that allegation. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. So, so here is the logic. Jesus had done a very, very good thing, had he not? Uh, no one could logically argue that, that healing this demon-possessed man and, and ret- restoring his, his ability to speak and see was not a good thing. Like everyone saw that it was a good thing. I mean, maybe the Pharisees were suggesting that it, in some ways it was bad because it was done on the Sabbath. But, but, but I think we all know and the crowd knew that this was a good thing. You know, it was, it was interesting this week... Um, it was Thursday, and uh, we were up here at church and, and uh, had this 80-year-old woman just show up at the church a couple days ago on Thursday. And, and she had asked to speak with a pastor, and, and she, could, she could barely walk. She, she had a cane and was very slow, and she could barely breathe. Uh, and I don't know what all her ailments were. She mentioned cancer. Her eyes were almost swollen shut. She could barely see it out of them. And, and she had been to the hospital and just gotten released from the hospital. And she got released to the hospital. She, when, when she got home, she found out that her power had been cut off. She had no electricity in the home because she had not paid her power bill. And we've, we've seen her before. We've seen her um, probably 10 times over the last seven years. She raises her grandkids. Um, she came up here. She had no food. She had no power. And she reached into her pocket when I asked her, and she did. She presented me with a, a, a power bill, an electrical bill. And, and it, as she said, the cutoff date was the day that she was sitting in my office. I could tell that it had been cut off that day. And, and so um, after looking at her and talking to her, we made a good decision in the church. We decided to pay her bill. And, like, I see people all the time, like, you know, when I see able-bodied men come in and ask for money, I generally want to say, hey, you go get a job. Here's a $20 gift card to get you some gas. and Go, go get some work. But when you see someone who is helpless and they're sick and they're dying and they're responsible for other people and they're not able-bodied and they don't have electricity in their home, I don't think there's anyone who would sit in these pews who would say that, that paying her bill that day was not a good thing. I, 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 mercy... For the helpless is always good, even on the Sabbath, right? That's what we're learning, as we said. Even on the Sabbath, that work of mercy is good. Here's the deal. The Pharisees are suggesting that Jesus' good work, this miraculous healing, came from an evil source, that it came from the devil. And, And the point Jesus is making is really pretty simple. Good trees produce good fruit, and bad trees produce bad fruit. And the tree represents kind of the nature of man. The tree is, it's who you are. If you are a good tree and you have a good nature, you will produce good things, okay? It's really an 
kind of an agricultural illustration. The idea is this, and I think this makes sense to you. If you want to identify what kind of tree that is, one of the best methods you can is to, is to go out on the branch and to see what kind of fruit it produces. Um, we go to Belize a lot as a church, and, and that's where we go do a lot of missions. And, and, and really, Belize has a lot of fruit trees because they have a great climate for citrus. And, and so you see banana trees, and you see orange trees, and lime trees, and all kinds of trees. And i got to be honest with you, I'm not much of a botanist. I'm not much of a tree expert. Um, so, so take a wild guess when I'm walking through Belize how I tell trees apart. I look at the fruit, you know. I'm not that good. I see a banana. I go, oh, I know. You know, I don't know what a banana tree looks like, but I know what a banana looks like. I've been eating them my whole life, right? I know what a lime looks like. So, so this is a very simple illustration. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, how can you witness the good fruit of, of my ministry and suggest to the crowd out there that it's somehow evil, like your reasoning is flawed. It's like looking at, at trees covered in oranges and suggesting to the crowd, look, look, it's an apple tree. The tree can be known by its fruit, and the, and the fruit of Jesus is, is obviously good. We, we've been witnessing it through the gospel. Um, what Jesus does next is he applies that same logic back to the Pharisees, okay? Jesus is going to condemn their nature, but he's going to do so by showing them that they have bad fruit, okay? So let's, let's look at verse 34. Jesus says, you brood of vipers, definitely uh, the most probably dangerous snakes that were in the land at the time. That's how he's going to refer to them. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. Jesus is, is looking at the Pharisees and looking at their fruit, and one fruit in particular, he's looking at the words of the Pharisees, right? He's looking at their words. How can you, he says, how can you speak good, what they're talking, when you are evil? Basically, he says, you can't, because I, it's only out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Listen, I want, I want to suggest to you that, that one of the fruits that people produce is their words. And, and so one of the easiest ways to tell what kind of tree someone is is by listening to their words. And, and yes, I know that like we're trying to decide if someone's a good person or a bad person, and the Bible teaches that no man is good. I know that, right? I know the Bible teaches that all men are wicked, and so does Jesus. Jesus knows this too, right? And yet, Jesus still uses this illustration. Uh, so, so let me tell you why. It's my understanding, right? When we are talking about salvation, it is important to know that all of your good works are filthy rags, as far as salvation is concerned, okay? You have no good works to bring to the table. That being said... After you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, you will produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You will produce evidence in your life that reflect the indwelling of God's Spirit inside of you. So everyone who has the Spirit of God inside of them should produce good fruit. It's an order, it's kind of an order of operations thing. Remember order of operations in math? Like, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. You learned that so that you would know how to do the order of whether you multiply first or subtract first. It's an order of operations thing. You're not saved because you do good works. You do good works because you were saved. You see, it's an order 
of operations thing. I'll show you that tension in the Bible so that you understand better how it's an order of operations thing. So look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Okay, here's what you see. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So this is not by good works. You could say that right there. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, right? This is, this is, this is verses 8 and 9 in Ephesians. Good works mean nothing for your salvation. But hold on, read the very next verse, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How do, how do, how do wicked people do good works? How, how do wicked people do good works? Well, by grace first they're saved, by grace they're filled by His Spirit, and by grace they have a new nature, and, and in that new nature they're able to do these good works. So, back to Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus is going to examine what kind of tree the Pharisees are by examining their fruit. Look again, read, read verse 34 one more time. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What Jesus is saying is, he's suggesting that your words, now hear this, your words are evidence for who you really are in your heart. Isn't that interesting? And the image, the image kind of is that, that, that your heart is, is so full of your essence, your heart is so full of who you are, that it's overflowing. Your heart's just, it's, it's just crammed full. One commentator says that you're, you're kind of so full of who you are that you need an overflow valve so that you don't burst. And that overflow valve becomes your mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when your mouth lets out the pressure of your heart... It exposes who you truly are. It exposes what kind of tree that you are. In, in context here, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you could not help but say evil things about me because your heart is so full of evil and wickedness and bitterness. Of course, the fruit of your word is going to be wicked. It comes from a wicked source and a wicked tree. Look at verse 35. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Do you remember when Jesus says that um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? What, what you value or what you treasure is, is always is kind of tied into your heart. If, if you treasure the things of God's kingdom... What's going to happen is, is when you speak, your words are going to expose what you treasure. So, so if you treasure God's kingdom, your words are going to reflect kingdom values. But if you have this um, unregenerate heart, a, a heart that has not been changed by the Holy Spirit, you are not going to treasure the things of God. And, and your words are going to expose you for what you truly treasure and what you truly value, things that are contrary to God's will. What I want to make sure you hear this morning is that a great tool for measuring your own heart and, and what kind of things you treasure and what kind of tree you really are is to evaluate your own words. 
Because your words expose your treasure. They expose your nature. Your words expose your heart. If you treasure the things of God, your speech reflects God's values. That's why Paul uh, instructs his church uh, of Ephesus to steward their words. So uh, Ephesus 4.29, look at what Paul says. He's talking to him. He says to him, he says, guys, let, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Paul wants the church to, to recognize that their words matter and to avoid that corrupting talk. You know, if you've read James, he has this kind of the same theme so, so look at James chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. This is an interesting verse, especially in light of what we've been reading. It says this, From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a, a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You see, James was talking to Christians. He was. And, and James was, was rebuking his brothers who seemed like they were schizophrenic in their mouth or, or in, in, their, in their hearts. In one moment, they spoke as if they, they treasured God's kingdom. And then in the very next moment, they spoke as if they, they hated their brother. And so James is confused by this. He says, how can blessing come out of your mouth in one moment and curses come out of your mouth in the next. What kind of tree are you anyway? What do you really treasure? Back to Jesus and the Pharisees. Verse 36. Jesus says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. So, so on the day of judgment, we are to understand, this is, Jesus, this is Jesus talking here. Jesus knows about the day of judgment more than you or I do, so let's just take his word for it. He says that on the day of judgment, uh, there will be an accounting, very much a mathematical term, an accounting for every careless word that the Pharisees speak. The Pharisees will, will have to account for or answer for words spoken without care. Isn't it interesting, you might expect that, that, that Jesus would say something like, for every wicked word or every evil word, but he doesn't say that. He says, for every careless word. What is it to speak something careless? It's unintentional, it, just, it has no value in the kingdom. It, I mean, what, is, what do you think that means? And just to clarify, just so we know, uh, Jesus isn't simply speaking to the Pharisees. He, he is... He is, but, but he tells the Pharisees that, and he uses this term, people will give an account for their careless words. It's not just that he's saying, you Pharisees will give an account for your careless words. He's saying people will. It's, it's kind of there's a universality of it. All people, including you and I, you know, don't you, uh, I assume that there will be a day of judgment. Christ will return and the dead will rise and everyone will be judged. I don't know fully what that judgment looks like. I, you know, scholars have different ideas here, and there's a lot of scripture about it. But I know that everyone will face judgment. It will, it, there's a universality of judgment, uh, even Christians. Okay, and, and the reason I can say that is I look at the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is what he says. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Seems pretty universal. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to the church, right? And what Jesus says is this, that your words will be used that day. Your words will be evidence that day in the courtroom. Verse 36 through 37, we're going to read this again because it's very important that you understand this. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And he continues, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What is imagined, as I said before, is a courtroom. A judge hears the case, and your words are presented. And by your words, you are either pronounced justified or you are pronounced condemned. So let's get back to the context here. Jesus is, uh, is speaking to the Pharisees, right? right? And, and what do the Pharisees believe about themselves? The, the Pharisees believe about themselves that they are righteous men. I don't know if you know this. The, the Pharisees are very self-righteous. The Pharisees believe that they will stand before God based on how they're living, and they believe that they will be found justified because of their personal righteousness. They're not worried about their words. But what Jesus wants the Pharisees to uniquely know is that on the last day when they are judged, that that Jesus is kind of saying, we are going to examine your fruit. We being the triune God are going to examine your fruit, and and it's going to, your fruit there, your words are going to expose you, the Pharisees, as evil trees. What does Jesus say? He says, by your words you will be condemned. This should be a troubling story for anyone who feels self-righteous. If you feel self-righteous, if you think that you have lived a good life and you could stand before the judgment seat of God and based on your deeds be found righteous, this should be a troubling story. Because what Jesus is saying is, you know, we're going to bring your words out and we're going to play them. We're going to examine them all back, and you're going to be found guilty. And so my question to you this morning is, uh, if your words were to be used against you on that great day of judgment, would there be evidence for your wickedness? Are you a gossip? Do you tell lies? Do you say crude things? Do you belittle people when they are not around? Do you lash out at loved ones when you're angry? Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Jesus says to the Pharisees, and he says, all people will give an account for every careless word. Have your words been careless? I had a friend um, who once told me, he was talking about how he was raised in his home. He said that every night his family would, would get, gather around the kitchen table and they would prepare a nice meal. And, and he and his sister would, would listen as their parents took turns bad-mouthing everyone they knew. That was dinner time, right? Every dinner. There's like every night, that's what my parents did. They, he said that they, they went to church and they supposedly loved the Lord, but every night as they gathered together as a family and they sat down uh, and had a nice meal together, they would pray before the meal and like a dog that returns to his vomit, his parents would recount the events of the day, pausing to bad-mouth every person in their life. Uh, they would say things like, Karen, Karen can't help it. She's a drunk. 
Did you see how fat Carl has gotten? I can't stand to be around Helen anymore. Did you see the way her daughter dresses? Were any of you raised like that? When you were raised in a home where you're just kind of surrounded by that stuff? I, I guess one of the things I look forward to asking our parents in church today is, is whether or not their kids have to listen to them share that kind of careless words, maybe on the way home from church or maybe at the dinner table. Because if, if, if you're living that way, you're training your kids to be just like you. If you are a Christian, you have two natures at war within you. There is your sin nature, and if you're a Christian, there is the Spirit of God within you as well. And both those natures are at war. I want to uh, encourage you to not give your sin nature control of your mouth. In, in your fight against sin, I, I hope you are. I hope, uh, you know, what was the old uh, great quote? Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. You ever heard that before? It's a great, one of the greatest quotes of, of all time. I, I hope that in your great fight against sin, you realize that 80% of you fighting against sin is being able to control your mouth. James says something says along the lines of, you know, uh, if, if a man could just control his tongue, he could control his body, right? If, if you could have just enough self-control to stop talking when your sin nature flares up, you would really be at a place to honor Christ with your life. So I want to review today's teaching. Uh, first, Jesus says, you can tell a tree by its fruit. Good trees have good fruit, and bad trees have bad fruit. Jesus' point was that the Pharisees could not attribute his healing of this demon-possessed man to the work of the devil because if the work was good, if, if Jesus' fruit was good, well, then the tree or its source or its nature was good. Jesus had, of course, done good works. But on the other hand, Jesus asks the Pharisees themselves, how, how could, could you even speak good because you're evil? Bad trees cannot produce good fruit. It's only out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth can speak Friends, what we, what we treasure in our hearts, we bring forth in our words, whether good or evil. And on the day of judgment, we will answer for the words that we have said. By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. I know we are running out of time. I want to examine one last verse, because I know some of you are probably concerned that we are preaching a works-based salvation this morning, right? Doesn't it feel that way? That by your words you'll be saved and, 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 or condemned? That's, that apparently is what Jesus is saying, right? It's what I've taught today, and it's true. You will be judged by your works, but that's not the full picture. I want to try to examine a little bit more just one image of Judgment Day. Revelation 20. Verses 11 through 12. Read it with me. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no, pray, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So, let me summarize this for you. John sees the great day of, of judgment. 
He sees all the dead coming before a great white throne. Now look specifically at Revelation 20.12. If we could put that up, that would be great. It says uh, there in Revelation 20.12, it says books are opened, right? Multiple books. It says, it actually takes, uh, takes this idea or maybe uses an idea from Daniel chapter 7 where it says the books were opened in judgment, right? And most theologians and most scholars believe that these books are the books that hold the deeds of men. These are, are the books of, of history. These, these books hold a record of your sins and your words, and, and these books are used against you in judgment. And by that standard, by the merit you bring in the books of history, you are in trouble. I am in trouble, right? Because we've all sinned, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. So, so we see that, that in judgment, the books are going to be open. You're going to be answering for your words. You're going to be answering for your actions. But the good news of Revelation 2012 is this, that after all these books are open and all the history is read, and after we've all been found guilty, there was one last book to open. It's the book of life. And inside the book of life, there is a record of everyone who belongs to the Lord, there is a record of everyone who by faith has believed in Jesus. And by the way, what Scripture says is that, that the book of life, all those names were written in it before the foundations of the world were laid. And if you have believed upon the name of Jesus, your name is in the book of life. And then the merit of Christ will be attributed to you and you will find salvation. So, so two things are simultaneously true. You will be judged by your deeds with everyone else as the books are open. But in the end, what saves you is not the record of your deed in the books. What saves you is having your name in the book of life because you believe in Jesus, because you belong to Jesus, because you are counted among God's people. So, my friends, I implore you to live lives that honor God. I I know and you should know that you will in judgment give an account for your words. But in the end, those who belong to Jesus will be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word and your teaching this morning. As Jesus begins to reveal... Um, the depravity of, of all of us. He begins to, to, to reveal to the Pharisees the, the sinful nature of their hearts. While they may think that they're self-righteous, they're, they're drawn to sin through their own nature. How could they do anything but, but speak evil? Because it's only out of the abundance of their heart that the mouth speaks. And God, for us, we find ourselves wrestling in this place where we have two natures. The Christian has their, their sinful fallen nature in them, but they also have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as Paul often described, we wrestle daily with our flesh. We wrestle to control our tongue that we might speak words that bring glory to what we truly treasure, the kingdom. So God, would you empower us to do so? Would you draw us to repentance where we fail? 
May we be terrified of the day in glory where the one who sits on the throne opens the books and reads before us the things we have said in the shadows. And we rejoice in the work of the Lamb by which our name is written in the book of life. To you be all glory and honor in your church forever and ever. And all the church said, Amen. Amen.